let's turn back to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 this morning. In the 1970s, in Egypt, a treasure hunter discovered near Armenia an ancient manuscript. It dates to the late 3rd century A.D. Now, most certainly, it is a copy of an earlier Greek manuscript, which dates to the 2nd century A.D. Irenaeus, a theologian and church father who wrote in the 2nd century, seems to reference the work. And he calls it a fictitious history of Jesus. In 2006, the National Geographic Society published the work under its original name, The Gospel of Judas. Almost no scholar is attributed to the first century betrayer of Jesus Christ. It is a Gnostic gospel, a false gospel. In the Gospel of Judas, Jesus commanded Judas to stage his betrayal. Jesus felt no pain on the cross. Jesus came to offer secret Gnostic knowledge concerning how to escape this material creation around us and to get back to the spirit world. Bart Ehrman, who's an agnostic, celebrates the work. He writes, The Gospel of Judas portrays Judas quite differently from anything we previously knew. Here, he is not the evil, corrupt, devil-inspired follower of Jesus who betrayed his master by handing him over to his enemies. He is instead Jesus' closest intimate friend, the one who understood Jesus better than anyone else who turned Jesus over to the authorities because Jesus wanted him to do so. In handing him over, Judas performed the greatest service imaginable. According to this gospel, the gospel of Judas, Jesus wanted to escape this material world that stands opposed to God and return to his heavenly home. This gospel has a completely different understanding of God, the world, Christ, salvation, human existence, not to mention of Judas himself. And he concludes, it will open new vistas for understanding Jesus and the religious movement he founded. But my purpose is not to respond to Bart Ehrman or the Gospel of Judas this morning. But I am very curious about this perennial interest in Judas. As early as the second century, people attempted to rehabilitate his image. That interest has actually grown in modern times with people's uncritical acceptance of Gnostic writings and the History Channel. So, what, friends, is the truth about this disciple who famously betrayed Jesus in the upper room? Well, in John 13, the night has already begun. Jesus rising from supper to wash the disciples' feet. This included Judas' feet. Jesus is on the verge of receiving all authority over all the nations. Why then does a Jewish Messiah act in such a servile way? This is unbecoming. Although the disciples did not initially understand Jesus' meaning, Jesus himself acknowledges this misunderstanding in verse 7. They would soon come to understand what he meant. 
They would understand that his kingdom is built on love, not military power or political hierarchies. And soon enough, they would also learn the lesson that Jesus intended in verse 15. He said, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. All but one of them, that is. One disciple never If you're looking at an ESV, you'll notice the heading over verse 21 reads, One of you will betray me, and that is a good heading. However, I would back it up before verse 18. In verses 18 through 20, Jesus prepares his disciples for a betrayal. In verses 21 through 30, John explains the betrayal. So let's take these two sections in turn. Verse 18, here is the preparation for betrayal. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has mentioned his betrayal. Let's turn back momentarily to John chapter 6. In John 6, Jesus is concluding his Galilean ministry among the Jews, and the crowds begin to dwindle. He has fed the 5,000. And yet, they demand another sign. Jesus refuses. And then Jesus puts a poignant question to his disciples in verse 57. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Now, Jesus' use of the twelve is significant. There was a group of twelve Chosen man whom whom Judas was a legitimate member. I keep reading. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, more than twelve, was going to betray him. Well, clearly, Jesus knew long before he came to the upper room that Judas' betrayal was coming. If you glance back at chapter 6 and verse 4, John tells us when this happened. He says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This is the Passover that occurred the year previous to the Passover on which Jesus died. So Jesus predicts his own betrayal a year in advance. My friend, how do you you explain Jesus' choice of verb in verse 70, the verb choose? Jesus chose Judas and the other eleven. Why did Jesus choose someone he knew would betray him? 
we are not given the answer here. But let's turn back to John chapter 13. A year has now passed. Jesus has journeyed to Jerusalem for his final Passover. And once again, he speaks of choosing his disciples in verse 18. But in the second half of the verse, he also acknowledges that the scripture must be fulfilled. Let's read the whole verse. Verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Verse chapter 6, he chose all 12. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus chose Judas. That is true, but he also insisted that the scripture must be fulfilled. The scripture predicted that one of Jesus' own would, in fact, betray him. Jesus is here quoting in Psalm chapter 41 and verse 9. Would you listen to the whole text? Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, Jesus, of course, only quoted part of the text, but clearly the broader context of Psalm 141 and verse 9 indicates that Jesus' own friend would betray him. Jesus knew, according to the psalm, that his friend would, in fact, betray him. It had to happen because the scripture had predicted it. And so Jesus chose Judas. Friends, if God's word predicted that Jesus' own friend would betray him to the most brutal, agonizing death possible, well then, so be it. God predicted it. God said it. And he deliberately chose Judas. Remember just last week when Jesus was in that great temptation of the devil? Jesus responded, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, what if that word predicts your betrayal and your brutal death? Does Jesus resist? No. Not for a moment. He chose the betrayer. Jesus understands that Judas' betrayal, together with his coming cross, would utterly demoralize the other ten disciples. It would lead to their defection. His betrayal and death could prove to be the bitter end of his kingdom preaching movement. The disciples need to understand, however, that this, that what is about to happen, is not some sort of enormous setback for the kingdom of God. In fact, that kingdom, he's already told us, has to be planted like a dying grain of mustard seed into the ground before it can become a great tree. It must happen. And that's why, in verse 19, Jesus reassures his disciples that he is not some sort of hapless victim. Jesus' treachery will not, in fact, derail Jesus' cause at all. Look at the text, verse 19. I am telling you this now. Before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. 
This is the first of several instances in the upper room that night in Jerusalem where Jesus gives his disciples assurances that there is more to the story that has yet to be written. This time tomorrow, Jesus will be dead. Jesus will lie in a tomb. Before that happens, Jesus wants to bolster his disciples so they don't scatter him and scatter from him and defect permanently. I'm telling you this ahead of time. Far from defeat, Jesus wants his disciples to understand that his betrayal, his cross, his death, it was all planned. Jesus was aware that plans were already put in motion that very night. And in some mysterious way, were in fact the plans of Yahweh. And that's why at the end of verse 19, when Jesus says, I am he, he was actually uttering God's sacred name, Yahweh. Do not despair. Everything that's about to happen will reveal the truth that's been there all along. This is Yahweh's work. Yes, even the betrayal was foretold ahead of time. Yahweh is sovereign. Now, did the disciples eventually come around to understand all that Judas did what Jesus said here to them in the upper room and suddenly galvanize them to action? And the answer is yes. Eventually. When you just listen to what Peter proclaimed at Pentecost, after the resurrection, this is Acts 4 and verse 23, Peter said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, Peter could not have made that statement in the upper room. There's no way. He was still clueless in the upper room about the mysterious plan of God driving Jesus relentlessly to his cross. But by Pentecost, all the pieces have just fallen together for Peter. It's like, oh, it all makes sense. Jesus was killed by a lawless man. He was killed by Judas, who was possessed of Satan. But that's not the whole story. Jesus was delivered up according to the plan of God. Centuries earlier, God had actually predicted that Jesus' own friend would betray him. Jesus likewise predicted his own resurrection three times. Jesus predicted his own betrayal. Jesus, in fact, chose his own betrayer. None of this is a surprise to God. And finally, for Peter and the other disciples, presumably, it all makes sense by the time we get to Pentecost. At Pentecost, Peter understands, yes, wicked men killed him, but this was all the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So, do we quite understand verses 18 through 19? And if so, how then do they connect to verse 20? The transition here is a little challenging. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Who receives me receives the one who sent me. Well, what's the connection? Well, in verses 18 through 19, Jesus essentially says his mission will proceed despite the defection of Judas. Jesus does not want his disciples demoralized by what Judas is about to do. All right? That's verses 18 and 19. Therefore, 
if God has this situation clearly under control, since he predicted it, well then Jesus in verse 20 can reassure the disciples of their own mission. That's verse 20. If someone receives the one I send, that is, if someone receives the disciples and Jesus commissions, well then that person received Jesus. Further, whoever received Jesus receives the one who sent me. Well, that, of course, is the Father himself. So in summary, verse 20 asserts that Jesus' mission will go forward by those who he sends out. Sure, Judas will defect, but Jesus' mission is going to move forward. That's verse 20. And that brings us into verses 21 through 30, where we learn how the betrayal will come to pass. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in the spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. three previous occasions recorded in the Gospels, Jesus has spoken of his suffering, death, and resurrection. And on each occasion, the text indicates the disciples were disoriented by what he said. They were perplexed. Well, that same confusion is evident in verses 21 and 22. Jesus predicts his betrayal by one of his own, but the disciples don't understand of whom Jesus is even speaking. How could this be? It's possible the gravity of the situation was lost in the disciples. After all, Jesus could calm storms. He could feed the hungry. He could perform muddy deeds. If he could actually predict his betrayal, couldn't he powerfully overcome that betrayer? Most certainly he could, right? We also know from Luke's Gospel that in the upper room, the disciples are still arguing over who is going to be greatest in the kingdom. So again, the gravity of the situation may be lost on them. They don't seem to fully understand the betrayal is coming tonight, this very night, and Jesus will be dead the next day. Now, in verses 23 through 25, Peter asked the disciple whom Jesus loved, whom Jesus loved that's probably a reference to John, to inquire as to who might betray Jesus. It was customary, of course, in those days to recline at a table when eating a meal. John, reclining next to Jesus, would have actually had his back turned to Jesus, and he would just have to kind of lean back and ask Jesus a question. He could repeat the question from Peter to Jesus. 
And Jesus answered John, explaining the identity of the man would be revealed by a gesture of kindness. Jesus would dip a morsel of bread in the Paschal bowl and hand it to the betrayer. Now at this point, Jesus apparently, and I'll defend that term apparently in just a moment, Jesus apparently answered John quietly and individually. The remainder of the passage indicates the other disciples did not understand what was happening when Jesus handed the bread to Jesus. Now, there is a question concerning how to reconcile John's account with Matthew and Mark in particular. Alright? And perhaps you've read the different accounts and you've wondered about this. This is one of those areas where people have said, well, how do you reconcile the Gospels? Is there some sort of contradiction here? Alright, well, if you go back and look at how many Gospels and read it very carefully at first, it sort of gives you pause, like, what exactly happened here? Alright? Here's what Matthew says. And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Mark's account reads, And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. So the betrayer dips bread in the bowl. That's how you know. Now, in Matthew and in Mark, Jesus is passive. References to the one dipping the bread, not Jesus. But in verse 26, John makes it sound like Jesus actively identified the betrayer. Look at verse 26. And Jesus answered him, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Alright? So if you just read the different Gospels, are you kind of stuck? Like, what did we do with this? Alright, how do you explain the difference? Well, you can be certain there was no contradiction between the Gospels. There was only the difficulty of harmonization. And this really should not surprise us. We must remember that the Gospels give us an abbreviated account of what actually would have happened over several hours. And like any historical event that we attempt to recall from memory, we never recall every detail. We never report every detail. We don't always get them in the right chronological order either. Right? So there's no contradiction, but you've got multiple eyewitnesses commenting on the scene. So given all that, let me give you one possible reconstruction. All right? This is how I think it went down. And by the way, I'm not the only one to say this. All right? Several have noted this. This is not original to me. All right? Now, neither Matthew nor Mark mentions Peter's question to John. Alright? I take Peter's question to be a follow-up question for clarification. Matthew and Mark then report that the disciples could not comprehend that one of them would betray Jesus. Jesus says, someone is going to betray me. It's actually one of the twelve. And you can imagine that murmurings would have broken out around the table. And, of course, among anyone else who was in the upper room that night. And there are indications there were others there that night. And Jesus responds to these murmurings by emphasizing that, in fact, one of his own would betray him. Alright? It's going to be one of his own. Someone who had actually dipped his hand in the bowl would betray Jesus. That could refer to any one of them, 
assuming there was a single ball, at least one ball shared by the disciples. Mark's account emphasized that it could be any one of the twelve. All right? So it could be any one of them. Now, again, there may have been others in the room, other bowls in the room. All right? But at this point, we've got it narrowed down to twelve. It's going to be one of the twelve. In the consternation that follows, then Peter asked for more clarification. This is where I think John's Gospel comes in. Peter asked for more clarification. How quickly he asked for clarification, we can't say. Maybe several minutes, maybe ten minutes, maybe half an hour, we don't know. But the others may have been distracted by other conversations at this point, and ruminating on Jesus' statement, Peter was likely worried about his own culpability. He would, in fact, deny Jesus three times later that night. So Peter asked John to get a specific answer from Jesus. And Jesus responds, again, I take it quietly to John, with a specific sign that initially only John and Judas understood. Jesus would take a piece of bread and dip it in the bowl and hand it to Judas Mysterium. And that act would suddenly narrow it down from 12 possibilities to Judas himself. Now, in verse 27, Jesus told Judas what you are going to do, do quickly. But verse 28 clarifies, now no one at the table knew why he said this to them. Again, this assumes Jesus merely sent Judas out on a mission to purchase food or give alms to the poor. That becomes clear in verse 29. All right? But Jesus narrows down from 12 down to Judas at this point and sends him out. And that reconstruction, it seems to me, is the best way to harmonize the Gospels. We're going to reconstruct what happened that evening. Now, it does raise some very intriguing questions then about Judas. Who is he? Why did he betray Jesus? Why did no one suspect him? Why did they fail to suspect him even when he got up and left the table? And why, as early as the second century, has there been so much interest in rehabilitating his image? Why a gospel of Judas? Somebody wrote that. Well, let's actually just back out of the scene for a moment and try to understand more of this famous betrayer. Here's a question What would we know about Judas from the four gospels if we knew nothing about this betrayal? What would we know about the man? Well, actually, we know surprisingly little about many of the disciples, including Judas. Collectively, they are portrayed as the twelve and treated as the twelve, but biographical details of individuals are somewhat slim. But the little that we do know sheds some light on his betrayal. Judas was actually a venerated Hebrew name. It was actually a name given to one of those patriarchs originally, the term Judah, same person, Judah, Judas. Same name, I should say. Judas is first named in Matthew chapter 10. And Matthew, of course, writing after the fact, tells us Judas Iscariot would betray Jesus. But Matthew didn't know that at the time. And Matthew tells us that Jesus commissioned, listen to this, the twelve to preach the kingdom to the lost sheep of Israel. He also told them, heal the sick. Raise the dead. 
cleanse lepers and cast out demons. Well, we have no reason to doubt that Judas actually preached the kingdom and performed miracles. If you find that difficult to believe, then remember two passages. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Many would prophesy in his name and cast out demons and perform mighty works. Nevertheless, he would deny them. And second, remember, Balaam, a false prophet, actually spoke God's truth. All right? Now, Matthew tells us nothing more about Jesus and Judas until we come to chapter 26 in the upper room. Mark's account also tells us of Jesus calling the twelve. And Mark adds this note, And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And he appointed twelve, including Judas. Mark also tells us discipleship had a twofold purpose, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So picture Judas casting out demons. And then come the terms of verse 27, Satan entered Judas. Mark's gospel also relates that Jesus commissioned the twelve to go out two by two. To preach repentance, cast out demons, and to heal the sick. Luke's gospel adds another detail. Jesus prayed all night on the mountain before selecting the twelve apostles. That included Judas. So Jesus prayed about Judas all night long. And Luke tells us Jesus entrusted twelve with power and authority over this demons. That's really astonishing. And John's gospel relates that Judas had charge of the money bag and that he was a thief. But again, John was writing in hindsight. The fact that Judas was given the money in the first place indicates that he was trusted by the other disciples. We have a reference to the money bag right here in verse 29. Now, at this point, I've actually surveyed everything that we know about Judas at this point. But come again to John 13, and we will discover one more insight into Judas' character. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in the spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And look at the response. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of who he spoke. Curiously, no one points the finger of blame at Judas. No one. The disciples assumed it could be any one of them. And remember, one of them went out two by two with Judas. And yet no suspicion fell on them. All four gospel writers emphasize that no one guessed that Judas was the betrayer. Matthew 26, 22. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? Mark 14, 19, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? Luke 22, 23, and they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? Clearly, Judas was not suspected by the eleven. 
And that is a significant insight into his character. How is it possible that the disciples, wise men, whom Jesus chose to found his church, never suspected Judas, even after a year earlier he predicted one of them would betray him? You think it'd all be suspicious. Who is it? But clearly, Judas was adept at, at concealing his true opposition to Jesus. Judas was a master of disguise. Now, wouldn't you expect that if Judas had entered into the league with the Sanhedrin, and then Jesus suddenly pointed him out, pointed out that he knew the betrayal was coming, wouldn't you expect him just to sort of freeze with terror? Oh, I've been caught. The blood would drain from his face. His shifty eyes would no longer make contact. His palms would turn sweaty. His uncoupled mannerisms just dim away right away. That's what I would expect. But no one saw it. And this fact becomes really clear in Acts when Peter moves to appoint his successor. And there is not a hint of a, well, we knew it all along sort of attitude. It's just not there. Rather, the eleven treated Judas as a legitimate office holder. This vacancy must be fulfilled. Here's what Peter actually said. He was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. He was one of us. He was a ministry partner. Peter says, let another take at this, his office. That implies Judas was a legitimate office holder. So again, there's not a hint of a we do it all along sort of attitude. It's just not there. So in summary, we don't have much detail to really reconstruct the character of Judas, but what we have is actually quite positive. Let's put it together in six points. Number one, Jesus was chosen by Jesus. Number two, he performed miracles. Number three, he preached repentance and the kingdom. Number four, he was trusted with the company's finances. Number five, none of the eleven were suspicious of him. Even moments before his betrayal, he gave no hint. And number six, the eleven viewed Judas as a minister, an apostolic office holder. And when you take, friends, those six points, would you let them pressurize a single word in verse 21? The word betray. Judas' act, in the purest sense of the term, was betrayal. It was treason. We sometimes use betrayal to mean something like disappointment. I was disappointed because he betrayed my confidence. I'm never telling him a secret again. That's not the meaning at all. Judas cast out demons and then was possessed by the greatest demon of all. Judas preached the kingdom. And set in motion, motion a plan to murder the king. Jesus was cho- Jesus, Ju- Judas was chosen by Jesus, and Jesus left him right up at the end, John 13, verse 1. And then Judas chose death for his master. And Judas' betrayal actually followed two acts of kindness on Jesus' part. He washed Judas' feet, and he gave him bread, a gesture of friendship and supreme love. So what happened? 
Well, what motivated Judas' Judas's betrayal really can only be guessed at. Judas was possibly the only non-Galilean among the twelve. R.T. Franz in his commentary suggests that Iscariot may derive from the expression meaning man of Kiriath, a city in Judea. Though it's quite possible that Judas anticipated more than the others that Jesus would soon lead a revolt against the Romans and liberate Judea. Disappointed and fearful of being identified with the Galilean prophet, he just turned on Jesus and betrayed him. And curiously, the record of Jesus' trial suggests that Judas must have divulged a considerable amount of information on Jesus. R.T. France again says this, The high priest seems remarkably well-informed about Jesus' alleged claims, more so than Jesus' recorded public statements would easily explain. And it may be that Jesus' role as informer included passing on aspects of Jesus' private teaching as well. So it could be that really he was thinking, okay, he's not going to liberate Judea, so he just turns on him. He goes and informs the high priest every little detail. Another suggestion, suggest, suggestion is that Judas is like a pre-conversion Saul of Tarsus who viewed Jesus as actually leading Israel astray from the Old Testament. Think of this. He conspires with Jerusalem authorities because he wants to see Jesus condemned. But can you imagine Saul doing the very same thing? I can. From outward appearances, Saul was as devoted to the Old Testament scriptures as anyone in the first century. Very devoted to the Old Testament. But his misunderstanding unleashed a fiendish persecution of the church. Now, of course, he couldn't touch Jesus, so in great wrath, he went after Jesus' disciples. But I can very easily imagine Saul betraying Jesus if he thought this would put an end to that kingdom preaching movement. Well, whatever the reason, Judas suddenly turned on Jesus in Jerusalem. And regardless of attempts, both ancient and modern, to rehabilitate his image and his character, friends, the four gospels simply will not allow it. His action was pure betrayal. He betrayed Jesus. Well, when I come to the end of the passage, I always think, okay, how do you, how do you really apply this? All right, and I just want to say that as I began thinking through the application of this passage, I thought, what do you do with this? And I sort of struggled with this all week long. Some passages are just more difficult to apply than others, but the sobering reality is that Jesus predicted in Matthew chapter 13 that in the future many false disciples would come. in his kingdom for all the world they look like true wheat but they were really weeds hardly distinguishable from true followers well they look like Jesus I hope that describes no one in the room but it's possible it does and if it does you look inside your own heart it would be very good for you to ask yourself a very simple question do I want to continue being a Judas? Or do I want to be a Saul on the road to Damascus and let the light come to shining on me? Friend, it is not too late for you to come to Jesus. It's not. 
you are not too far gone. John 13, verse 1, the apostle tells us that he loved the disciples until the end, including Judas. And John communicates that great truth before verse 2, where he speaks of the devil putting it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. That Jesus loved Judas until the end. That's the point. So, friend, it is not too late for you to come and allow the love of Jesus to shine in your heart like it did Saul on the road to Tarsus and turn and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as a second application, let me just again reemphasize that God foreknew that He planned it all along. He already had a plan in place to overcome the deeds of lawless men. And so when we look around the world and we look at our own lives and we see the trouble in our lives and we see the trouble in the world today and we see the trouble in Ukraine, we see the trouble in Israel, friends, the Lord knew this, the Lord foresees it, and the Lord can bring about great good out of very dark and evil circumstances. And that may be the message for a believer today. No matter what pain or suffering you're facing, the Lord knows it, the Lord understands it. He brought about good to this enormous act of betrayal. The most wicked act in all of human history was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And God brought about enormous good through the crucifixion of Christ. May that be an encouragement to you today. Father, it's a difficult thing to preach through Judas and his betrayal. And we just pray, Lord, that there is no one here who is a Judas. Pray, Lord, that they would submit if they are here this room. In the work of your Spirit, that they would repent and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.